0: Good morning. Good afternoon. good afternoon. Oh, good afternoon, I'm sorry. I'm just not, all, all these years, I'm just not used to this afternoon. Um, well, last time I was here, I, I, I preached from Romans 6. I told you I was preaching essentially from a devotion that I had been working through. I just started uh, Romans 8 um, a few days back. Uh, Martin had emailed me and said that, you know, Romans 7 was a good response to what I had been preaching on that Sunday a month ago. And so having just finished Romans 7, I thought I would preach Romans 7 Um, and just do the last um, passage in Romans 7. um, Widely regarded as the most discussed and fought over passage in the entire epistle. And that is um, just I would have thought it was Romans 9, but that's what everybody says. Romans 7 is a is a tough one. So uh, normally I have this big, long introduction, but I'm just going to jump right in. Uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to read from Romans 7 the end of the, to the end of the epistle. That would be verses 14 through 25. And then I'll pray. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to, to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members." Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Please pray with me. Gracious Father in heaven, we confess that our hearts are wretched and as paul says who will save me from this certain death thanks be to jesus christ we know lord that you are the solution that we are completely uh, unable and even unwilling to come to you were it not for your grace were not for the fact that you chose us and you lifted us up i pray lord that as we study this passage and we learn about you and ourselves we learn about sin that you help us with this struggle for truly, this is a struggle, and we need your help. We need to rely on you, depend on you, and may, may your spirit be gracious in, in helping my words encourage all of us, encourage one another to live as you would want us to live, to delight in the law and our inner being, and serve you with a whole heart. We love you, God, and pray your blessing upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe may be seated. So I I would, if I was preaching here in the long term, if I was in Taylor's place, I would probably preach four or five sermons on this passage. And uh, much like many men before me, um, I think Piper had five. Um, and that's nothing compared to some people. I mean, I'm sure Boyce had more. Um, nonetheless, I'm kind of doing what I would probably do a little bit in the beginning and a little bit at the end and kind of smashing it together. So... Um, I would apologize for being, I've been pretty good about being brief the last few times, but this is my last seropera, I I suppose, for a while since Taylor's going to take over. And so I won't apologize, but I probably will go a little bit longer. Um, Because if I apologize, it would be insincere, right? My wife says, quit apologizing in your sermons. Um, So let's jump in. I'm going to talk about the controversy, I think, uh, that I I mentioned. Uh, The apostle says in verse 15, I am doing the very thing I hate. And then in verse 19, he says, I practice the very evil that I do not want. And verse 24, he exclaims, wretched man that I am. So how is it that this mighty man of God, the Apostle Paul, could be struggling so much with sin? Now, some interpreters seek to reconcile the the perceived contradiction, while others acknowledge that the passage truly reflects Paul's struggle as a regenerate Christian. What I prefer to call the minority opinion, some view this passage as Paul referring to himself in his unregenerate state. Others, like John Wesley, suggest that Paul goes into character to speak about the struggle of sin as a non-believer. Now, thinking that Paul would not struggle with sin certainly squares with Wesley's view of perfectionism, that Christians can to some degree attain perfection. However, I think that's a pretty difficult doctrine to defend. Wesley was right about a few things, but certainly wrong on that one. Certainly, John says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And there's also some contemporary commentators commentators like Thomas Schreiner, who's a leading voice in the Gospel Coalition. A lot of good dudes on that site, you know, really. Um, and he thinks that Romans 7 does not describe the Christian experience. Shriner's most persuasive argument may be that Paul doesn't mention the work of the Spirit when the essence of the Christian life is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, noting that life in the Spirit is the prevailing theme of the next chapter. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, possibly the most gifted English-speaking preacher of his generation, spent 14 years preaching through Paul's epistle to the Romans. 14 years. I mean, he, would spend, he would spend like a whole sermon on like a couple words, right, in a verse. Um, interestingly, though, he only, he only devoted like seven sermons to this passage, which is for him is like flying. Um, but he thinks we ask the wrong question if we inquire about Paul's spiritual status, or he would probably say status, in Romans uh, 7, 14 to 25. He says, rather, Lloyd-Jones suggests Paul's explaining what happens when someone pursues sanctification according to the law rather than by the Spirit. While it's true that seeking sanctification apart from the the Spirit is a fool's errand, could it be still that our passage describes a struggle that is the normative Christian experience? Augustine wrestled with this. And at first he did not want to understand. He couldn't accept that the apostle Paul was referring to himself since he, you know, he was spiritual, since Paul was indeed spiritual. But he wrote this book later called Retractions, which is kind of like every theologian should write a book called Retractions, right? Something when they learned over the, because we, we have to learn new things, right? We couldn't have been raw, right on, well, Taylor can be right because that's his name, But to be, to be, sorry, a little joke we were talking about before the service, but um, to be, to think that everybody's right in every issue. Like, for example, for me, on the sovereignty of God, it wasn't until Romans 9 just like shook my world, you know, back when, when Tom and I were, were single guys, you know, uh, going to a Bible study at Dr. Forney's. 20th century, twentieth century, right. And you remember it was in the 80s. And Tom, I think, didn't you go to those, uh, Tom and uh, Fred and Diane Walsh's house. Okay. So uh, we, we had a, uh, there was a group of us from Friday Bible study mostly. And we went to this person's to, to uh, an older couple was kind of like mentoring us, I suppose, or, but hosted in their home. And we discussed the sovereignty of God. It shook my world. So I, I suppose if I had wrote something then and write something now, I've even looked at things I've written 30 years ago. And I suppose I should write a book called retractions. Um, but he, He later wrote that he considered more carefully the interpretations of other scholarly men, and he came to see that this passage can also be understood with reference to the apostle himself. In other words, in his regenerate state. Aquinas, Luther, Calvin, and gosh, all the Puritans agree in most respects that Paul is describing the struggle of a believer in Romans 7, which I'm like really glad, right? Because I read Romans seven, and I go, I can identify with that, right? And so, even as a Christian, and so I'm, I'm glad. Now, I'm going to talk about how we should approach that. It doesn't mean I should, we should be making excuses. I'll get into that. But um, modern expositors, most guys that, that some of us look up to—Packer, Sproul, Piper—they they agree that this is indeed the Christian experience. And so, I'm going to give five reasons why I think. And there's Piper has ten. But I'm going to give five reasons that I kind of did through my own study of why I think Paul is describing our Christian experience. Now I admit that the most important part of this message is is, um, how we prepare and and respond to the struggle, but it seems wise to identify the problem in order to assess it accordingly. And I do admit that I'm being a little bit self-indulgent. Okay. And that's why my sermon's being a little longer. Um, I'm going to list the five reasons right now and then kind of go and defend each one. Uh, First, I think this passage describes present realities for Paul. Second, an unregenerate person would not delight in the law, which we see in the passage. Third, the apostle never admits to struggling with sin pre-conversion. Fourth, I think the the passage describes an occasion, not total captivity to sin. And fifth, Paul describes a Christian's battle with the flesh flesh elsewhere. And surely we've experienced this, right? So let's go over each point. Um, First, in the preceding passage, or I'm sorry, in the passage preceding this one, Romans 5-13, through Paul speaks of past reality. So if you have your Bibles open to Romans 7, you you can look along, notice a tense of the verbs starting in verse 5, while we were in the flesh. And then in verse 7, I would not have come to know sin. And he says, I was once alive, I was once alive, apart from the law, proved to be a result in death, and it killed me, past tense, right? When we were in the flesh, our sinful passions were extensively at work, extensively. But in our passage this afternoon, starting at verse 14, Paul now uses present tense, continually using first-person pronouns, I, right? This change of perspective would argue for a change in Paul's spiritual status. As Paul tries to answer the question of how God's law, which is good, relates to a sinful person, he explains the problem isn't with the law, it's with our sinful flesh. And I would love to jump in the middle and perhaps pastor can get to that at some point, but that's another sermon, right? But it's really a good one, but that's really the theme of this passage. And I can't stress it enough. The problem is not with the law. Paul's defending the law. He's saying the problem is with us, the sin in us. When considering the present reality that Paul describes in our passage I think the burden of proof falls on those who suggest a, a non-literal translation. He's speaking in present tense, right? And he's writing this to the church at Rome. Secondly, Paul genuinely, in our passage here that we read, genuinely delights in the law. If he was unregenerate, Paul would not say, I delight in the law in my inner being. For those that suggest, who suggest that Paul was speaking as a Pharisee, I would say, no, it doesn't fit. Jesus regularly accused the Pharisees as hypocrites who did not love the law in their inner being. He says in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs. He says, You are beautiful on the outside, but what does he say about their inside? He says, Outwardly you appear righteous to men, but in- inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. This is not a description of someone who loves the law in their inner being. That was not the kind of person that Jesus was describing. Whereas in the concluding verse of our passage, Paul notes that how through Jesus Christ, now he's speaking as a regenerate person, through, or he's still, he's still speaking as a regenerate person, he serves the law of God with his mind. My third point is that the apostle Paul never discussed his struggle with sin when describing his pre-conversion experience. In fact, it seems that Paul never agonized over his sin. He says elsewhere, referring to his former life as a Pharisee, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. How does he, how does he remember when he, I can't remember the, which uh, passage is where he describes all these things about him. When He says it's all rubbish. Rather than depicting an intense struggle with sin, Paul portrays himself as the one who trusted in his own righteousness. Conversely, Jesus accused the Pharisees of neglecting, he says, the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Fourth, in this passage, closing Romans 7, I think Paul is referring to the experience of weakness in a moment. Paul is not saying that he's totally you know, in captivity to sin. That's not what's happening here. He's referring to the, the to an experience that we all experience at moments, at times. Piper says, when he describes his passage in Romans uh, 7, 14 through 25, as Christian experience, he says it's not the ideal experience or normal steady state experience. When a genuine Christian does the very thing he hates, that's verse 15, this is what really happened to Paul, the Christian, in moments of weakness and defeat. Paul was not perfect. In other words, Paul was acutely aware of his sinful condition and the inherent struggle to pursue holiness. I mean, aren't you? I, Jesus says, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I mentioned that thing, that, that series that we had in the afternoon where we talked about this. One of them, we had one whole Sunday where that's what we talked about. Be holy as I am holy. So, and... and But that's the goal, right? That's the standard. What coach says, oh, just go 90%, right? I think I mentioned that in a sermon before. Jesus is saying, we need to shoot for 100%. He knows we're not going to make it, but that should be our goal. But imagine if Paul had said, oh, if you're united with Christ, you will never struggle with sin. He doesn't say that, does he? Never. The Bible never says that. In a past sermon, I mentioned a conversation that J.I. Packer had with a seminary student. This is retold by a seminary student, actually. So Dr. Packer delivered some uh, guest lectures um, uh, and they assigned him some office hours. And so students could sign up and and I've I've told this before, but I'm gonna do a better job this time because I'm prepared before I was doing it off the cuff. Um, So Packer welcomes the student. He says, what would you like to know? And so this particular student who's now a pastor says, What's going on in Romans 7? And the way he describes these, Pecker leans in gently and says, Young man, Paul wasn't struggling with sin because he was such a sinner. Paul was struggling because he was such a saint. Sin makes you numb. People who sin over and over again become desensitized to sin. The reason that Paul's struggle was so intense was not because he was caught in a web of sin, or because he thought of himself as hopelessly doomed into the temptation that he faced. Rather, it was because Paul lived his life so sensitive to the Holy Spirit and passionate about the glory of God that he intensely felt his sins whenever he became aware that he had committed a sin, since he was, of course, not sinlessly perfect. And I've mentioned to you in the past, the older I get, I so saw I said it in Sunday school this morning, the older I get, The more I am aware of my sins, the little ones, especially just the way I talk to my wife, just the way the way that I complain. I mean, uh, I make excuses. I sin all the time and all in the past, those little things. I never saw a sin. I thought that's just me. Everybody does that. Right. And now I'm more acutely aware. And I think that's what Paul was like. I gave the example of like, you know, having a, a, a nice white shirt and having us a little stain on it, and you notice it. Paul noticed those little stains, even though his shirt was mostly white, right? Fifth, this is my last point in this part. I think the same struggle, detailed in Romans 7, is also confirmed by Paul in Galatians. He says in, in, in chapter 5, and we've used, I used this as a, a New Testament reading in the past, right? would have used it again. Um, he says, for the flesh sets his desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. He's saying the same thing in Galatians. He's talking about Christians. I think there's no, I don't know how Schreiner can, think, can believe it, frankly. I mean, the old guys maybe, but he should know better. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but he's written some good stuff. Uh, I'm sure you would all agree that Paul describes what we've all experienced right there in Galatians 5. This is why Paul exhorts us to do what? Walk in the Spirit. We need to do that if we're going to have any kind of victory over sin. The Westminster Confession, referring to the corruption passed on by Adam, explains it this way. This corruption, this is, I thought this was pretty helpful. And you'll know, I mean, they, they're kind of used to me with quotes. I was a debater in high school, and we just rolled out our big cases of quotes. I love quotes. So, um, and I know they sometimes can weigh you down in sermons, but hey, I'm, I'm all about quotes. So, this corruption of nature remains in those who are regenerated during this life. Although as pardoned and mortified through Christ, yet this nature itself and all the actions coming from it are truly and properly sin. The guilt of possessing this corruption is no doubt removed by the blood of Christ. But recognize the power of it is subdued by his spirit and grace, even though it retains the character of sin. That's why even though we're new creatures in Christ, we still sin. There is this competing nature. We won't be perfect until we are redeemed and in heaven with Jesus Christ and God the Father and Holy Spirit. Amen? Right? So in line with Packer's explanation, as Christians, we feel sin more acutely because the change wrought in us by the Holy Spirit. The unbeliever doesn't feel the guilt. When I, I, when, when people, when, when I was first witness to, I was like, ah, I'm, I'm a good guy. I don't feel any guilt. Yeah, I know. Nobody's perfect, right? The world believes that. Even pagans know that. Nobody's perfect. So if anybody's going to get in, why not me? I had a bad theology, right? Right. A conflict exists between our regenerate hearts and the remaining presence of our sin in our lives that was not there before conversion. And now we sin, we see our sin more and truly for what it is, right? John Murray, in his commentary on Romans, writes that the more sanctified a Christian becomes, the more painful to him must be the presence in himself of that which contradicts the perfect standard of holiness. In other words, as you mature as a Christian, you start to see the sin more, and you shouldn't like it. You shouldn't be comfortable with it. You should hate it. So I, put, I write out my sermons, even though I don't always read it. Um, But I write it out so I can practice some better word economy because I'm a wordy guy. Um, And I put little like headings. So I call this section hopeless or hopeful. Hopeless or hopeful. Of course, you know what I'm going to say there. If we characterize the struggle with sin in this passage as if Paul is struggling with sin, then how does God expect me to do better than the Apostle Paul? Paul. And if we think that, then we've misrepresented Paul's argument. Again, let's not presume that Paul struggled mightily with sin. The struggle is real, but God's grace is sufficient. Yes, temptation in our sinful nature present a formidable challenge. But the apostle's message for believers is one of hope, not hopelessness. You know, like a? I, I love to follow Buckeye football. And when I, I listen to, po- you know, press conferences and coach speak, all, we call it coach speak all the time. And what do they talk about? Preparation and execution. Those are the two, two of the buzzwords that I hear all the time. And I think that's what Paul's preaching here. He's preaching preparation and execution. And so the second part of my sermon, the, the application part, is I see this, there's a recipe for this hope, and I'm going to identify four ingredients. And that's this is, the, this is the good part, I suppose, um, or the better part, let's say, because calling, Paul's calling us to action. He's saying, Look, yes, we have this struggle. Yes, it's tough. Yes, we can't get fully get rid of that old nature, but there's hope. You can, there's something you can do and you can have victory. And so there's four of them. And I got this first one from, I heard, um, Tom, did you go? I keep talking to Tom like he's saying, but did you go down to Florida and, and, and for that Ligonier conference back in the 90s? No. Okay. I don't know what doing with that. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, I heard, I heard Dr. Packer uh, speak on Romans 7. And so this first one, I still remember. I couldn't remember all of his points because this is over 30 years ago. Well, no, about 29, 29 28, so uh, close enough. But he said, and this is my number one point because I remember him saying this. He said, admit that you haven't got what it takes. And you've heard me say this probably, most of you have heard me preach before, and I've said it many times, I, I stand by it because it's really important, right? It's a good starting point. Admit that you haven't got what it takes. I think it's a given that fully understanding the parameters of a problem is a first step to, to obtaining a solution. You can't stop being an alcoholic if you don't think you have a drinking problem, right? So I'm saying, We've got a problem. I've got a sin nature that's not completely destroyed. Now, I've got the Holy Spirit in me. Praise Jesus, right? But I've got to know, look, we got a problem. Paul says, sometimes we do the very thing we hate. Verse 15, right? Sometimes. So Piper says, the point of Romans 7 is not that we should make peace with sin, but that we should make war on our on sin in our own lives and know how to understand ourselves. That's the key here. Know how to understand ourselves and how to respond when we suffer tactical defeats in the war. Because sometimes we're going to suffer some defeats. That's what Paul's talking about here in Romans 7. Sometimes we don't do what we want to do. Understanding ourselves means confessing that you have no power to deliver yourself from the sin that entangles you. So when you tell yourself, I just need to do better next time. I think it's like extinguishing a house fire with a cup of water. You're not gonna get anywhere if that's, if that's all you're doing. Oh, I just need to do better next time. I'm sorry, God, I'll do better, I'll do better. Well, we must concede that we haven't got what it takes. We must be careful. If we stop there, we'll be prone to make excuses. In fact, I thought about making its own category, making this five instead of four and say, stop making excuses. Because I do that. I do that. Haven't you? I've complained. God, why did you make this? Why did you make me this way? Why did you make this standard so high that I can't attain it? I've complained. I'm a complainer. Ask people who know me. I'm sorry. I'm a complainer. In our hearts, if we, if not directly in our prayers, I suppose we complain about God's petition for purity. But what Paul's saying here is. Don't blame the rules. Don't blame the rules. He says the law is spiritual in verse 14. He says the law is good in verse 16. The problem isn't with the law. It's with us. And so a good starting place, rule number one, admit that you haven't got what it takes. But don't stop there. Become what you are. Rule number two, seek renewal. Seek renewal. While true confession of sin includes the admission of personal inability, it doesn't mean we are without hope. When Paul says, who will deliver me? What does he say? He says, thanks be to Jesus Christ, our Lord. By the sufficient grace of Christ, we can experience meaningful change and we should expect it. We should expect it. How else can we, in verse 22, he says, how else can we delight in the law and our inner being? Not only do we have to hate our sin, but we need to love righteousness. They both go together. As Christians, we need to become the person the Word of God says we are. In the previous chapter, Paul says our old self was crucified with him. And the command that follows to change uh, is, is to change the way we think about the thin, sin that controls us. He says, consider yourselves dead to sin. We have to change the way we think about sin. By God's grace, we will find less delight in our sin. Again, I remember backspacing out and wondering how... to. Uh, if we're, if we're honest, we find delight in our sin. That's why we do it. And we, we have to stop that. We have to evaluate and say, nope, that's wrong. That's wrong. A few verses later, he explains, referring to chapter 6, he says, having been freed from sin, verse 18, you became slaves of righteousness. But our renewal is linked to the command in the next verse. He says, present your members as slaves to righteousness. Spend your time doing the right thing, and maybe you won't do the wrong thing. If we delight in the law and our inner being, we will find joy in pursuing righteousness. This is critical because we will always do what we most want to do. If the pursuit of godliness is what pleases me most, if it's what pleases us most, then that's what we will seek. What brings us the most pleasure? Hopefully doing what's right will bring us the most pleasure. By the transforming power of the Spirit, I set my mind on the treasure of Jesus Christ and all that God is for me in him. That, of course, is the theme of the next chapter, the glorious chapter, chapter 8. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds in the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds in the things of the Spirit. And he says we're confident. Why? Because the Spirit, he says in verse 26, next chapter, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So the third point I wanna make is we need to prepare for battle. So it's point three, expect warfare. If you start off saying, okay, God, I admit, I haven't got what it takes. I'm gonna seek renewal. I'm gonna set my mind on spiritual things. Guess what? Now you're in for a war. Expect warfare. Given the sin that dwells in me, verse 17, and the evil that lies close at hand, the evil lies close at hand, verse 21, we must be prepared for spiritual warfare. When the apostle warns in Ephesians 6 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, as it says in the King James, powerful wording there, I think, he says to keep alert with all perseverance. Why? Because it's a war. While it's a war we can be equipped to win, it is a continual battle nonetheless. Martin Luther wrote a letter to a friend that was struggling with despair, a good friend. And he says, if the devil cannot break a person with his first attack, he tries by persevering to wear him out and weaken him until the person falls and confesses himself beaten. That's the spiritual, the powers that are working against us that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. Declaring war on sin incites certain resistance. You can count on it. And we must prepare for the battles that most assuredly ri- lie ahead, as the Apostle Peter warns, which we read in verse in First Peter uh, chapter five, the, the reading. And I'm so glad you read verse eleven in the bulletin. It said verse ten, and that's my mistake if I didn't put in eleven because you don't want to end at ten when you got eleven there, right? So thank you for. I, I was waiting. Is he going to read eleven? <laughs> but he says, "Hey, be sober minded, be watchful, because the devil is like a a, a lion that's prowling around, right?" And so. Um, Luther's advice to his friend was, try as hard as you can to despise those thoughts which are induced by the devil. In this sort of temptation and struggle, contempt is the best and easiest method of winning over the devil. We need to pour contempt on our sins. We must learn to despise it. And that requires regular, intentional effort. So what is your plan for da- the daily renewal of your mind? In fact, if I, if I ask you what your plan is and you're not sure how to answer that question, it means you don't have a plan. And I, someone just, I, I happen to mention something like that. And I taught Sunday school this morning and, and someone told me and I said, I'm gonna use that in my sermon after church. And she said, the, um, well, let me see if I get this right. Failure to plan is a plan for failure, right? I, I'm sure a lot of you have heard I have people nodding their heads, but failure to plan is a plan for failure. I've never, I, I probably heard it, never used it, but I like it. It's, it fits, right? But Paul says, you know, in 2 Corinthians 4, which I'm, which I'm really my, one of my favorite passages in, in the New Testament, we don't lose heart. He says, we don't lose heart if our inner self is being renewed day by day. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians four sixteen. So I say, expect warfare and have a plan, have a plan. And I talked about that in the in previous sermons. So that's number three. So we're, we're saying, admit that you haven't got what it takes, you know, pursue, you know, pursue renewal, expect a battle. And, and now I'd like for step four, celebrate victory. Admittedly we are prone to dwell on our failures. That's human nature. And, and we should lament our sin, don't get me wrong, but it can be counterproductive if we let the devil beat us down. And that's what we're prone to do. If we get caught in a sin, do it a couple, couple times, we just, oh, that's just the way I am. Or worse yet, we just, we despair. Oh, what am I gonna do? I can't beat this. Oh, I'm a failure. We, we let the devil beat us down. We can't do that. I don't think that's what Paul's saying here. He's never giving an indication that we should let this struggle that is so intense, right, that is real. He's not saying we should let the devil beat us down, that the, that the struggle should overwhelm us. No, I think his conclusion at the last two verses, is that we should celebrate victory and count it joy when you when when, he, when you succeed. That's why he says, "Thanks God, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord." In verse twenty-five, the apostle is rejoicing in the victory that he has in Jesus Christ. This includes recalling, and I'm going to add to this, right? This includes recalling how God has delivered you in the past when. Paul says God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temp- the temptation, he will also provide you a way of escape that you may be able to endure. When he says that, okay, we need to bookmark those times, bookmark those times of victory when God provided a way of escape. Um, so that'll help us overcome adversity in the future. So uh, when I remember um, the, the pastor um, now, this time I can be right, right? Did Pastor Jim marry you guys? Yeah. You and Melinda? Okay. The pastor who married his wife, Tom and Melinda, and my, T and me, we are in each other's weddings too. Same pastor, he said when, when things are, are down, he said, recall what God has done for you in your life. Recall the victories. That's what Pastor Jim would preach. Recall those victories. So I suppose this last point I could call it, Celebrate and remember. Now, Paul doesn't say remember. I'm kind of, you know, but James, when James says, Count it joy when you experience trials of every kind, he had to be presuming that we're going to be experiencing victory in there, right? He did. I mean, why would he say, Count it joy? Count it joy when you experience trials and get beat down, (laughs) you know, right? Count it joy when you experience trials and you fail time after time again. No. It's counted joy when you experience trials and have victory, right? Right? So, that's, yeah. So, otherwise, how would, why would he counsel you to per- persevere in your faith, right? You know, not to add to scripture, but I would probably say, especially count it joy when you experience a trial and overcome, right? Celebrate that victory and give praise to Jesus. Understanding our need for the sufficient grace of Jesus Christ. We need to make war on the sin in our lives, expecting resistance, but knowing we have a plan to overcome. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that uh, you would help all of us, help all of us change our mind about the sin in our life. Reveal it if necessary, if we don't know about it. But help us, Lord, in this struggle. We know that we can, we can experience victory, um, maybe not every time but more than maybe that we have been. And Lord, we're confident that your Holy Spirit dwelling us, if we have a plan for spiritual renewal, that we're we're spiritually minded, that day by day we're going to you in in, in your word and in prayer, we can overcome. We can can do better. We can do better. We can do great in this struggle. Help us, Lord, we pray. Motivate us to pursue holiness, to, to love your word in our inner being, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.